From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast, paying kids not to fight, yoga and mindfulness in the classroom. Students do a really good job when they feel that they have a voice. Stepped up efforts to stop the school to prison pipeline in Philadelphia. And why are we locking up a 10-year-old child who will come to school with a pair of scissors? Saying that your education is on hold because you've done something can take away from a student's ability to have an education. We'll take a look at whether it's working. One of the last remaining minority-owned cable companies in the region makes headlines when it sells off its cable subscribers. The mantra we always hold up of minority ownership is still going to be in play. Who bought them, what it means, and next steps for the legacy tech company. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. It's been more than seven years since the Philadelphia School District ended its zero tolerance policy and nearly four years since it launched a program in schools in partnership with the Philadelphia police to end the school to prison pipeline. Back in 2014, 1,600 kids were taken away from schools in handcuffs and arrested with kids of color being the ones most affected. Now fast forward and innovative ways to keep children in schools are on the rise. In fact, the principal at Mitchell Elementary School made headlines when she offered students 100 bucks not to fight. So what is being done in classrooms? What more can be done and is there still a school-to-prison pipeline? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint, we have Kevin Bethel, a fellow at the Stonely Foundation. He's also a former deputy commissioner with the Philadelphia Police Department. We also have Sam Dennis. He is the director of finance at Herb Ed Inc., it's a student-run, student-led nonprofit. He's also a senior at Science Leadership Academy. And finally, we have Angela Masseri. She's a fifth grade teacher at Richard Wright, and she has nearly a decade of experience. Thank you all for coming to the KYW studio. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. And I want you, Kevin, to kick us off and kind of talk about what you've seen over the years because you brought in an innovative program to the Philadelphia School District and had significant results. I've seen an amazing transformation. 1,600 kids a year were being taken out of the school district and put through the system. At that time, Dr. Height and many of his team were starting to implement, you know, restorative practice and, and really changing how the code of conduct. And we came in, you know, said, you know, we can't do it anymore. Now, why are we locking up a 10-year-old child who will come to school with a pair of scissors, uh, fingerprint him or her, take her into custody, and then the next day we let him go, not understanding the trauma we were inflicting in that child, not understanding the circumstances. So, we're really fortunate to build a strong partnership, particularly with Department of Human Services, uh, to really take a hard look and say, you know what, let's not put that child through that trauma. You know, what would happen if we come to the school, uh, release that, that child at school, and then move them into services and get them the help that they need? We've been blessed. I mean, we started 2014. Last year, we had 500 arrests. We had 1,600 kids for a system that used to do 1,600 kids. Last year, we had 500 kids, a 68% reduction. Uh, we have a large number, almost 1,600 kids who have been moved into 
Services, DHS and Department of Human Services done a phenomenal job working with those kids. They go into the community. It's family-based. They go to the homes. Yeah. They're looking at what's going on in the homes, trying to figure out what are those issues going on in the homes that cause and are you know, is manifested in the schools. Yeah. Really changing the concept of how do we deal with children and, and, and how can we do it better? And, and I'm so fortunate that the part of the grant we received in that process was the school district, you know, really instituting PBIS and instituting, you know, uh, restorative practices and, mm-hmm. and circles and those kind of things are now starting to kind of get a lot of synergy going and working together to change how, how we deal with our young people in the system. Angela, you've been in the classroom long enough to see the shift. What have you seen in the classroom? It's incredible to see over 10 years, like what a difference has come. For a while, it was like, what do we do with these kids? We just need to get them out for a little bit because we need to kind of clear our minds and figure out like what we're going to do. Whereas now, um, I think the approach that we're taking more is bringing the kids in, bringing their families in, really trying to understand the students' perspective, where they're coming from. I think students do a really good job when they feel that they have a voice and they have a purpose. Um, So just for them to be able to express how they're feeling, that really makes a huge difference. Um, So give me an example. What would you have done before and what do you do now when a student, for example, acts up in class or there's a fight or something? Well, just for example, so suspensions, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago were more, um, they, they were occurring more, whereas now we're really trying to keep the kids in the classroom, in the school Um, So maybe it would be a meeting with families that come up and we talk to the students and we talk to their families. Um, We do something called morning meeting every morning where we set our intentions for the day. We go over our expectations, what's expected of the child throughout the day. Again, just kind of giving them a voice and really just understanding, do they have any comments? Do they have any concerns? Did something happen last night at home that we could try to help them with? Try to leave it at the door, not bring it into school, bring it and just focus on what we need to do in school. Um, We do, we use a program called Class Dojo, which is um, electronic. It's powered by our smart boards and our cell phones. Students are awarded points throughout the day based on their positive behaviors. Positive reinforcement. Positive behavior, yes. And we do not um, take away points for negative behavior. If we see something that we need to work on or something that we need to fix, their points stay neutral. They don't they don't ever go down. So nothing's ever taken away from them because we really want to try to keep increasing and keep motivating. Sam, you've been in the you. I mean, you're about to get out the whole system (laughs) and go on to college. So tell me what you've seen and how how it impacts you when when you see kids um, acting out in school. Absolutely. Um, So being a part of the Philadelphia uh, school district um, for basically every single school that I've went to, elementary, middle school, and now high school, like the enactment of zero tolerance policies has been just a very broad dynamic that's been very evident throughout these three schools. And it really takes into effect on a lot of students that I've been peers with. And just taking that and putting it towards an education and saying that your education is on halt because you've done something that's gone against these zero tolerance policies really can take away from a student's ability to like have an education. And for me, of course, I tried my best to not be, you know, Caught have up. any infractions yeah. with uh, zero tolerance policies. But seeing my peers basically have their education at a standstill because of these minor infractions, just like you said, Kevin, it's it becomes this 
feeling of should I be in school? Should I have this education at my grasp? And how are these teachers going to actually take this into effect when it comes to me actually like putting myself out there on like a platform education? Because that has to have an impact on your psyche. Yeah, absolutely. To say where, well, we're going to snatch you out of class. And so I want to talk to you all about some of the innovations. Everybody involved has been working to decrease the numbers of kids being suspended and taken out of class and arrested and all these things. You know, introducing youth courts. And, and explain and, what that is. So, so what we're doing is looking at the youth courts as a way and where the young people set up the courtrooms uh, in the school setting uh, where the kids, uh, if they're in fraction in school, the kids go before their peers. These suspensions are just as bad as the arrest. A child who goes home for seven days or five days who's being sexually abused, potentially physically abused, not eating, you know, that could be a death sentence for them as well. And so we're looking to say, hey, how can we move upstream even further to be yeah. able to provide services so the school district can say, hey, you know what? Yeah, we can send that kid to our to the youth court and their peers will be adjudicating those cases. And that's and so, shifting the culture. That's the thing about the youth court. I sat in a, on a session before okay. at a charter school and it, it changes the whole culture of those kids. If empowered, yeah. they know how to get to the root causes and then they can... Because that peer pressure is, is, is a significant dynamic. And, and so sometimes we get caught up and we have all the answers. You know, at this point, I realize I don't. You know, so I rely on young men and yeah. young women to sit there and tell me what is, what is the best thing to help them move forward. And so, Angelo, I mean, I've heard of people doing mindfulness, yoga. We mentioned Mitchell Elementary School, the principal there paying kids to, to not fight. As educators, we all have our own different techniques of how we want our classroom to run. Relationships with my kids are like super important. That is like my number one priority mm -hmm. when I come in in September to establish relationships with my kids. Um, one of the methods that I'm actually using this year, um, flexible seating. So we are a deskless classroom. And if you came into my room, we have couches and bean bags and a Starbucks table. Oh, so kids, <laughs> kids want to be in my room. They don't want to be eloping. They don't want to be suspended. They are really excited they to come in. Establishing a good school culture is just so important in the classroom and out of the classroom, you know, in the hallways and specialist classes in the lunchroom. And I, with teacher buy-in, which we're really fortunate to have at Richard Wright, like the teachers really buy into all of this culture and establishing these relationships. So your room is the room to be in That's over right. there. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> and I know I know SLA has, do they use climate managers, like folks that uh, deal with the climate of the school and how, how do the students influence the culture? Are there leaders that influence the culture? Yeah, so it's, Basically, exactly as Angela said, like the teachers themselves are like the people who control the climate of their classrooms. And most of the teachers themselves, basically exactly like Angela's classroom, they try and model it to the comfort of the student. And I think especially one example, uh, Mr. K, who's um, an African-American history teacher at my school and like personally one of the first black teachers I've had in the Philadelphia school district. He basically has couches in the back. He has desks spread all around the front. And then like the first class you come in and he's like, Hi, I'm Mr. K. Pick a seat. Mm -hmm. Just go out, mm -hmm. um, meet new people, like make sure you don't have to sit in the same seat every single day. You can switch it up as long as the other students are okay with it. Things along those lines. And that's how they really like cater to the students to make them feel comfortable in the and classroom. And how did that make you feel, though, to have more of uh, more freedom within the classroom in that way? Well, that's exactly how SLA as a, like a school tries to 
Like they want to be a school where it's like you take your learning and you have it in your own hands and we just give you the resources to go out and do whatever you want. And I will say that because, Kevin, you mentioned that with the youth courts, because I've talked to young people who and people who are not so young anymore. And they said that getting leadership opportunities and given responsibility and told that you're in charge, if this messes up, it's on you. They took it so seriously that it straightened them up. And that's that's so important. I mean, I mean, I think back when I dealt with the flash mobs at the end of the day, it was the young people who I sat down with to help me resolve it. I mean, it was the young people who were engaged in the process. And when I brought those dance groups that ultimately came to be and put them in a room, we worked on how to come up with a solution. So that kind of opened my eyes to, you know, you have to get on the ground. You have to get down. You can no longer have this process where the kids don't have a voice. Their minds are different. They're mm-hmm. smarter than we ever were. Yeah, and so if we don't start to really bring that into the fold and have a dialogue about it and give them the, the power to make some decisions, then we're just failing our process. I think that students in Philadelphia, there's a stigma around them and low expectations have been set for so long, but it's it can be done. I mean, Sam is sitting here next to me about to go to Drexel or Penn <laughs> next year. Like it yeah. can be done. Let's talk about the school to prison pipeline. Is there still a pipeline? In Philadelphia, I mean, I, we still have kids who, who get arrested, unfortunately. Um, some of them do engage in behaviors that are outside the scope of our diversion, you know, assaulting of a, a teacher, assaulting, but w- but we're working. Yeah, and so this is probably one of the most positive education shows <laughs> that we've had. Oh, that's good. Because, you know, I thought, you know, when I read about, you know, a, a principal deciding to pay kids not to fight, I thought to myself, you know what, you got to do whatever this is necessary. Right. Is that sort of everybody's point of view? We'll do whatever we need to do? I think absolutely. I, she's coming out of her own pocket, right? So she's not yeah, taking it from anyone. At the end of the day, it's no different than my coach who told me that if we won, he was going to buy us all ice creams at the end, right? It's it's just giving those kids something to hope for. And and what I like about it is they, they give them something obtainable that they collectively have to now manage that through the year. How do we manage conflict? How do we manage our anger in that room? At the end of the day, she wins. Hey, listen, I say have that. And anybody listening, maybe they should be donating money so she don't have to go too far <laughs> yeah. in her pocket. You know, you never know. And, and is that true? You never know. Hey, you never know. A GoFundMe is probably hey, that's what I'm talking about. Right Start <laughs> up right now. Yeah, that's right. We're going to do all the scenes in the entire school district. Don't be stopped. I know. I know. But, and Angela, is that your, as we wrap this up, is that your point of view? Yeah. Any, whatever's necessary I, to I make think, this work. You know, for me, yes, that is absolutely what I believe. You need to do whatever you need to do. Some people are going to agree with it. Some people are not going to agree with it, but that's just the way it is. You're going to have to give up prep. You're going to have to give up lunch to talk to kids, to diffuse a situation. You're going to have to go spend your own money. You're going to have to stay late some days. It's just what you're going to have to do if we want our kids to be successful. And last word to the to the future engineer <laughs> yes, right, right here. Engineer in progress, should I say. How do you feel about what's happening now, the progress that's being made as you you know prepare to leave the Philadelphia School District. I feel like education is just going to become that thing that progressively gets better and better with every single graduating class that you have that goes on to the different colleges. Every single graduating class that you have will become like this dominant force that has an impact on the education of the students that are in like an education system currently. And they will be the major effect on those students because they'll be the ones that inspire. Well, I want to say thank you so much to Kevin Bethel of the Stonely Foundation. Thank you to Sam Dennis of Herbed Inc. And finally, thank you to Angela Masseri for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank, thank you. you.
Next up, they were one of the only cable options in town for Philadelphia Housing Authority residents, but not anymore. They were considered the hood, right? People didn't want to go into them. People were afraid of them. Deal one of the region's last remaining black-owned cable companies made with a technology behemoth and what it will mean for the low-income residents they once served. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. For generations, African Americans have faced difficulties breaking into the television and cable industry. And when you look at the tech sector, the numbers are at less than 2%, but Wilco Electronic Systems has been holding it down for decades. Since the 1970s, it's offered television services to roughly 9,000 Philadelphia Housing Authority residents, and it's one of the last remaining black-owned cable systems in the region. But in recent weeks, the company made headlines when it announced that Comcast had acquired the cable assets of the company. So what does this mean for PHA residents and for Wilco? With me in the studio to discuss this major change is Bridget Daniel, executive vice president and the daughter of the company's president and founder, Will Daniel. Bridget, welcome to Flashpoint. Uh, Pleasure to be here. You know, this is a major change um, for the company. Can you explain to folks in layman's terms exactly what's happening? Right. You know, Wilco Electronic Systems, we are a private cable company. We've been, you know, in uh, the Philadelphia area providing technology and cable services to um, understand served in underrepresented communities for over 40 years. Yeah, congratulations um, yeah, on that. Yeah, that's a long time, particularly in this town. And we proudly, you know, were, you know, that that partner that stepped into um, particularly the, the Philadelphia Housing Authority communities when other providers didn't want to go into those neighborhoods. So that was mm. like back in the 80s and the 70s. Um, and my father started that company from the ground up, came out from North Carolina to Philadelphia and literally started being in the cable business. Um, when there were a lot of people. Now there's, of course, a very small handful. And it was a big decision for us to, you know, say we're going to take on that responsibility of, one, being that provider, and then added to that responsibility of now we're going to have someone else step in. In the latter part of last year, we, you know, came to an agreement. um, And the reason why we made the decision was because when technology is literally changing every day, and it's very hard to sometimes even keep in step and in time and in relevance to what our customers needed. We knew that if we were able to have the opportunity to have Comcast come in and acquire those cable subscribers, then they would at least have the opportunity to now get those advanced technologies, all those interesting and new, cool um, applications all over technology and digital applications that that community needs. And so that was why we made the decision at the time that we did for the benefit of the residents and for the need for them to have those advanced technologies that we just weren't able to do at this time. So that means they're going to get a lot of the upgrades that folks who have Comcast get, like some of the new technology. Explain, break that down for me a little bit. They will be able to now have access to Internet Essentials, um, the whole Xfinity platform. And what I'm more excited is is that the, the now they'll have an upgraded infrastructure so that they'll have all the things that we don't even know are coming. Yeah. All those new home automation, healthcare applications, anything dealing with what goes into the home with technology, Comcast is at the cutting edge of that. And those are the things that 
really those residents need for those types of technologies to be in their home to give them better affordability of different types of services and also the access to those technologies that can help with healthcare, education, employment. So those are the reasons why um, we went back and forth and back and forth about what it made, like what made sense for us and what made sense for them. Yeah, and because I know a lot of people were like, "Oh no," because know. you know, um, you know, yeah. black-owned cable company. Let me tell you, you know, mm-hmm. you have been personally. I've seen you yeah. on panels as yeah. one of the few yep. um, African American women in yeah. tech. Just to you know, clear, we're not selling Wilco. We're just selling the cable components, our cable assets. Because Wilco does a lot of other Absolutely. things. Absolutely. So we do a lot around security and surveillance and I think you know we definitely do a platform around technology so one of the things that I started you know when my I I started with the company was not just looking at that that jack-in-the-wall that provided cable but also looking at all the things that go around that so digital divide education healthcare, um, and then also looking at not just being a provider to those services but also helping people become a creator of those services so the platform of, you know, doing well by doing good, we're still going to keep. The the mantle, the mantra we always hold up of minority ownership is still going to be in play um, because that's important. It's like you said, Jerry, like the fact that we're the last one or one of the last ones and there's not that many minority businesses in tech and cable, absolutely. Like that's still a very um, prioritized point of keeping the legacy going. So what we do in the future will definitely still be around technology and it'll still be around making sure that those who don't have it, those who are underserved, those who are overlooked are still able to get technology in any type of way that we plan to do it. It's wonderful that the family has sort of like trained, you know, because a lot of times Mm -hmm. there's not the second generation to kind of be there and to have the skills and to do what you do. As women, particularly And a woman, Mm -hmm. like, yes. And Mm -hmm. so you're being Mm -hmm. sort of trained into the legacy of your dad. And so, I mean, talk about that a little bit, like how you view the future, because there's so much space in, oh my in technology there for is. you all to grow. There is. So, I mean, for, for us, you know, I was just blessed to have, you know, the, the faith and just the, the, the knowing that, that my father had instilled in me to, to one, create a, create a seat for me at a table, right, and create a seat for his family at the table when there's not that many entryways to even get a seat. And then the other thing is to also be able to be as, you know, put us forth in an industry that although we started in cable, cable is just really technology at this point. It's broadband, it's internet, it's content. So the things that we can do now that we're able to have more resources to put to different avenues, whether it's software development, whether it is getting into content, whether it is getting into you know more IT management, there's things that we're looking at. And of course, also growing the security business, but there's definitely other avenues that technology can take us um, that we don't even know yet, but we definitely have the foundation, we have the reputation, and we definitely have the, the goodwill that people want to make sure that that legacy is still in play. I'm really, really looking forward to just new trails and new you know horizons, but for Wilco, ultimately we're going to be a part of the new way. We're going to be part of the new journey, the part of the new technology shifts that are taking place. Talk about the legacy a little bit because yeah. you were serving underserved mm-hmm. communities. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. in a way, it's like you built this mm-hmm. legacy of, yeah. which a lot of tech companies, they don't really focus on those yeah. communities. Yeah. So Will Daniel, my father, came to the you know to Philadelphia in the 1950s. And he actually came up from the army and leaving that, you know, that, that military career, 
it was when video and distribution video was just starting to come into cities. Yeah. So, you know, we began to get cable in the 1980s into Philadelphia. Cable was really distributed in like four sections of the city. Comcast had one. A company called Heritage had one. A company called Wade Cable, which was Jim Wade, who was another African-American owner, had one. And then there was one called Rollins. So my father was a part of the Rollins franchise, which eventually all these franchise then sold Comcast. And then Comcast, of course, became what we what we know as now. Yeah. So you guys were kind of like the last holdout. We were the last holdout. And we were the last holdout for a reason. One, because, you know, there weren't that many other companies that knew, wanted to or even had a desire to really serve those communities that just didn't look like them. You know, in the 70s and 80s, those communities probably were were very different. You know, they they were considered the hood, right? People didn't want to go into them. People were afraid of them. For us, it was what we knew. For my father, it was like, no, these are my people. I'm going to absolutely serve them. It was an opportunity for us to, you know, be a company that um, really started to, you know, create a social mission at the time when, you know, social impact wasn't even a thing. But we were really providing that service of, being a company that provided services to those who needed them at an affordable rate. And that's been always our our mantra, you know, providing the best to those who have the least and, and having them be able to have access to it in a way that they can afford for their home. And so now Wilco can rest assured that its customers will have the very sure. best yes. and the, the cutting edge of technology like the broader population. We are. We are absolutely rest assured. But, you know, for us, it's it's always going to be a part of our, our, our social goal to be that provider. And I think Comcast is absolutely in step with this program. They're absolutely in step with our transition for the residents of Housing Authority. And they are are also very committed to making sure that those residents have exactly what they need. Well, we will keep our eyes on Wilco. And congratulations to you, (laughs) you. Bridget Daniel, for stepping up and being the the legacy, being a part of this legacy that your father started. Thank you so much. Yeah, very exciting. Next up, they're changing the game by building bridges. With exposure and familiarity comes acceptance. The Chester County nonprofit that's opening the doors and minds of students in two towns. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and in recognition of Black History Month, we're honoring 10 community game changers. One of this year's honorees is the Andrew L. Hicks Jr. Foundation, an organization that builds bridges between youth in Westchester and those in the city of Chester. Karen Hicks is executive director of the organization, which was founded in honor of her son, Andrew. So Karen, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. So for people who have never heard of your organization, Please tell us a little bit about how you started it. We were founded in 2010, and it's named after my son, Andrew. In the summer of 2010, our family was on vacation in California, and we were hiking along the Pacific Coastal Trail. And Andrew and his little brother just got a little bit ahead of my family. And um, Andrew was getting a good look at the Pacific Ocean, and he lost his footing, and he slipped and fell. Um, he lost his earthly life that day. We just were talking a lot about what 
was important to Andrew. And he had been volunteering in the city of Chester, working at the Frederick Douglass Christian School. And he would come back from spending a week there in the summer, just really, really passionate about the kids that he had met in that city. And he came back frustrated and sometimes even angry at the lack of opportunities. Andrew was a really appreciative kid. And he went to Henderson High School in uh, Westchester Area School District. It's a beautiful school with great resources. And he just always felt like the kids in Chester that he loved should have the same opportunities that he did. So we just prayed about it and really felt like God was telling us that we needed to get his high school friends engaged in some sort of activity that would give opportunities to kids in Chester. So that's really how we got off the ground, just trying to create one event for kids in Chester, something for them to do that was fun. And the high school kids in Westchester loved it. Like, we we got to keep this going. And so they would come and meet and approach my husband and I and say, can we do another event? Can we take the kids bowling? Can we take them to a trampoline park? Can we take them to a football game? And so every month we just started doing events for kids in Chester and it has grown into what it is now. Tell me a, a lesson you learn when you see kids from two communities um, come together in this way. For me, it's... um. It's just remarkable to see that every child has God-given gifts, that regardless of where you come from, you are talented and gifted in some ways, and you have something to give. And sometimes you just need an opportunity. For the high school kids at Westchester Henderson High School, I feel like in our culture, um, a lot of the things that families do revolve around kids in Chester Mm -hmm. County. And so they don't really have the opportunity to step outside of themselves and see what gifts do I have? What strengths do I have? And how can I use them to serve someone else? And for the kids in Chester, what I see is a lot of talent and a lot of intrinsic value that doesn't ever get a chance to bloom because there's so few opportunities. Tell me about Andrew. Uh, He was a really humble boy. He didn't love going to Chester the first time. He felt uncomfortable because it was so unfamiliar. But our church made it easy in that he he went with friends and it didn't take but a couple of days before I had called down to, to there to just check and see if anybody needed anything. And I could tell right away that he was affected by this. And then as he went the second year and I, I could see that it changed his life. Andrew said to me, and this is after several trips to Chester, he said, why does it have to be so obvious where the black people live and where the white people live? It's just not right. That's the type of kid he was. He was very aware and sensitive to inequality. Why do we tolerate it? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be like this. I guess that's really you know, what I kept in mind when we started the mm-hmm. foundation was it's hard to get high school kids to volunteer. I think our foundation makes it easy for kids to volunteer because mm-hmm. we do the organizing. We pay for the events. They basically just have to say, yes, I'm available. And then they do it with their friends. Mm-hmm. But then once they do it, they realize, hey, I like had something to offer there. And I think sometimes high school students struggle with, do I have anything to offer? They just don't understand that God created them with value. He treasures them. But when we get them together and they can step in and make a difference, they then want to volunteer. So we've had so many high school volunteers go into college and come back and help us at camp or volunteer when they get a got a break or go volunteer at their own school in an organization where God's planted them. And it's been awesome to see Chester kids who've started with us in small programming and then gone into our mentoring program that are now in our teen leadership development program. And they're getting really amazing opportunities. We're letting some of them go to leadership camps and some of them are getting employment opportunities for the whole summer, full-time work, because they're connected to us and they're feeling like there's something more out there for me. 
Yeah. Just being exposed to new things and growing in growing culturally and spiritually and academically. And I think it gives them confidence. What is your vision for the foundation? That we would be able to continue programming with children who are, are in 12th grade. So right now our programming ends at 10th grade, but I'm looking forward to 11th grade and 12th grade, where I think we can launch kids into college or launch them into career. Complete the sentence for me. Um, I believe we are changing the game by giving kids opportunities to know kids that are not exactly like them and to see that they've got a lot to give. Congratulations. Thank you so much. To you and your entire family and the Andrew Hicks Jr. Foundation um, for this, for being a bridge to community. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. Can subscribe to the show by using the radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As activist Angela Davis once said, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.